Uhuru. Uhuru and welcome. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, which is broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. here on Black Power 96.3 WBPU-FM in St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. Reparations in Action is the weekly program of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, the organization of white people working under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, organizing in the white community to build the movement for reparations to African people. My name is Jamie Simpson, your co-host, and I'm honored to be joined in the studio by chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, Jesse Neville. Uhuru Jamie. Uhuru Jesse. And on the line, we have with us our stalwart co-host, the chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, Penny Hess. Uhuru, Jamie and Jesse. Uhuru Penny. It is outstanding to have you on from uh, St. Louis today. Uh, we want to salute you, Chairwoman, and we want to, of course, salute the leadership of the co-founder and the leader of the Uhuru Movement, the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, Chairman Omalia Shatela, and the African People's Socialist Party, uh, which he leads, as well as the African People's Solidarity Committee, uh, the organization of white people working under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party and Black Power 96.3 FM for allowing us to have this hour every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to talk to you about reparations and, of course, the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the baddest nonprofit organization on planet Earth, addressing grave disparities faced by the African community in the areas of human and civil rights, economic development, health, and health care. So why are we a bunch of white people here on this Black Power station today? We are here to address white people who are out there either listening to us on podcasts, maybe you're listening to us on Black Power 96 here in St. Petersburg or elsewhere. And we want to let you know, one, that there is a place for you as white people within the African liberation movement if you can unite with reparations to African people as our responsibility as a revolutionary demand. And this is something that we do under the leadership of the African community. And today we're going to be talking about how this came to be, how it is that we are white people here on Black Power 96 talking about reparations. And we're very excited to have Penny Hess, the original uh, person who answered the call mm -hmm. to take a stand in solidarity with the black community, with colonized people throughout the world and take on the responsibility to win reparations. And I should say also that this is reparations recruitment week. Mm -hmm. So this is an official membership drive of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, which you can join yourself if you want to go to uhurusolidarity.org. That's U-H-U-R-U, -U, which means freedom, by the way, if you weren't aware in Swahili, uhurusolidarity.org. And we'll be getting more into that later today. Um, but we really want to appreciate everyone out there who's listening, especially if you've already become a member, if you're thinking of becoming a member, um, we really appreciate that. And that's something that you can't underestimate the significance of. And today we're also going to be getting into the current events, which right now dominating the news is the question of the coronavirus. The news right now is dominated by this uh, illness, this new version of the flu, whatever it is. Uh, Italy's 60 million population is now under lockdown because of it in a government response to this virus. The global cases, more than 114,578, according to data compiled by John Hopkins University. Global deaths, at least 
4,028, according to the data compiled by Johns Hopkins University. And US cases, and this may be dated because things are moving quickly, uh, but at the time of compiling this data, at least 755 in the US, according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins, and deaths are at least 26, although we hear on bourgeois media this morning it's hit 31. According to data compiled by Johns Hopkins University, it's at least 26 people. And so we want to really open this up. For real. Yeah, I'm just really glad to be on the program again with you, uh, Jamie, and Chairwoman Penny Hess. And uh, before we dive in, I just want to salute the incredible uh, web show last night with Chairman Amalia Shatella that kicked off our Reparations Recruitment Week. That was amazing. So yes, was. Um, just really glad to be able to continue our Reparations Recruitment Drive today with Chairwoman Penny Hess, who, as you mentioned, was the first white person to join the Solidarity Movement when mm -hmm. it was first formed, the African People's Solidarity Committee back in 1976. And I also know Chairwoman Penny, uh, you've been doing quite a bit of research on this whole question of the uh, so-called novel coronavirus, this virus that we see is manifesting flu-like symptoms, sometimes turning into pneumonia-type symptoms, which has a reported mortality rate from at least 3.5% up to 15 or 18%, depending on who's reporting and the age and prior health status of the of that person. Uh, this pandemic began with an outbreak in Wuhan, China, which is China's largest city in the central region, a city of 11 million people. And the spread of the illness was first reported there in December of 2019. China put the city on a lockdown, a quarantine, closed schools, airports, shut down factories, and more. And the virus seems to be coming under containment in China, which is something that the U.S. media is, is attacking China for doing, saying that they're using draconian measures and things like that. But they are basically containing the spread of the virus there. However, it is spreading rapidly around the world, including here in the U.S. And we've seen the effects of this coronavirus uh, um, epidemic mm -hmm. on the world capitalist economy. The Wall Street uh, had its lowest uh, day in at least 10 years yesterday. Um, plunging at least 8%. So um, this is clearly part of the crisis, and, and we're excited to open this up with uh, Chairwoman Penny, who has been looking into this question quite a bit as of late. Uhuru, which, which I really appreciate. And I, I'm Uhuru, Chairwoman Penny, we can't wait to open up this question with you. It's It's been really dizzying to experience uh, the ruling class media's coverage of this. Uh, difficult to get an idea of what's actually going on. And we're, we're going to go ahead and say a dirty word on the air here around this, and that's biological warfare. Mm. Chairwoman Penny, the potential link between coronavirus and bio-warfare or biological warfare seems rather obvious to folks who have been paying attention um, with respect to where this originated in Wuhan and, and the types of facilities that we know are there. But this idea that there would be any connection to that is totally dismissed in bourgeois media as a conspiracy theory and censored on social media. This discussion itself that we're having right now might even get taken down from Facebook or other outlets because we are talking about this issue. Could you share some of the findings from your research that you've been doing on this particular issue? Uhuru, Uhuru Jamie and Chair Jesse of USM. And I just really want to salute this program, everybody that's listening. And of course, I want to join in saluting Chairman Omali Shatella the leader of the Uhuru movement, the chairman who has fought for the liberation of African African people everywhere. Mm -hmm. Let me just let me just say that I am 
getting um, a lot of distortion, so I don't know if you can hear me, and I'm also getting a feedback. Um, so it's better now. It's going in and out, though, so let me know if you can hear me. We hear you. You um, sound good. Okay, good, Coming good. clear. And um, I also want to salute okay. Black Power 96.3 radio station and, of course, Deputy Chair Zanesha Tello, Director Akile Anayi, getting feedback. Anyway, I, I will just try to keep going. Um, Director Akile, who leads the Black Power 96.3 radio station, FM station of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, and, you know, just all the programs of the Black Power Blueprint the African People's Socialist Party. Uhuru, Chairman Penny. And... I wanted to say that this question of the coronavirus is very interesting, and you hear a lot of people asking the question, and it's something that you hear the media trying to address over and over again, saying, well, if, if so far the flu, the average flu, kills more people in a year than the coronavirus, why are we going through all this? Mm -hmm. And I think that is a very good question. And, but I do think that it's obvious, you know, it's called the novel mm -hmm. coronavirus, and that means they've never seen it before in circulation. Novel means new. It's right. new. They haven't seen it. They haven't seen how it's going to play, play out. And I would say that, that there is the issue that they don't know what it's going to do. There have been articles. There was an article in... Um, a publication called New Scientist that said that are there two strains and is one more deadly? And this is something that has come from scientists that have analyzed it but is being very suppressed that there are two strains and that it that a virus does mutate. A virus mutates. That's just, you know, a given reality. And so, you know, while they say that the regular flu, that the seasonal flu that comes in um, is, is something that, that kills way more people or, ha you know, every year, like 37,000 people in the United States supposedly die of just the flu. But I don't think, I never remember hearing of deaths from the flu that almost wipe out a nursing home, mm. you know, that it's so contagious that many people die. It has happened in two different nursing homes in the Seattle, Washington area. And, it, you know, even if that happened with the flu, that would be news. But that's not something that I've ever seen. And so, so the question is, they don't know. Of course, they haven't tested in the United States, um, the United States. So we don't even know how many, how many people um, it is. But if we take the death rate at 30 one, and that the death rate is supposed to be um, something like 3.5% or even less, then, you know, that's going to give us an idea of how many people actually have it. So, you know, so they're saying 755 today. It is growing exponentially because 
less than a week ago, it was 250. And then the next report on the weekend was 500. Now it's 750. So it will be 1,000 in a few days, and then it will be 2,000, then it will be 4,000, then it will be 8,000. So that's how it will grow if they can't... Um, if they can't contain it. And even the CDC, I heard on the radio this morning, has said we are beyond containment. And that means they have to go to what's called mitigation. Mm -hmm. So that means that they just have to deal with what they have, um, that that their measures are probably not going to to contain it. So that's, that's very serious. And they're trying to, um, you know, they're trying, trying to minimize that. And You know, this question of the conspiracy theory, in the New York Times on Sunday, there was an article that said, surge of virus misinformation stumps Facebook and Twitter. And then the subhead is secret labs, magic cures, government plots. Despite efforts by social media companies to stop it, false information about the coronavirus is proliferating around the world. And then it goes on about all of these different things that it says, first, there were conspiratorial whispers on social media that the coronavirus has been cooked up in a secret government lab in China. Then there were bogus medicines, gels, liquids, and powders that immunized against the virus, et cetera, et cetera. So... You know, so they're trying to minimize anything about it. But the fact is that Wuhan, China does have a level four bio um, biosecurity lab that's called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And according to Dr. Francis Boyle, who is a professor at University of Illinois, who's written a lot on biowarfare, that all level four bio, you know, bio, uh, biological um, research labs around the world have only one um, purpose, and that is offensive bioweapons. Not even defensive, offensive, to use against people. And... It was studying viruses, mm-hmm. and accidents do happen, and um, the labs have a history, just like Fort Detrick, Atlanta. Atlanta um, here has one, and they uh, accidentally re- released the Ebola virus a few years ago. Um, reportedly, nobody was uh, affected by that, but we don't really know. We don't really know, um, but... Um, you know, Wuhan was studying viruses and that the chairman, somebody sent out an article a few, um, you know, well, first of all, in the Washington Post on, um, on January 29th, it was saying experts debunk fringe theory linking China's coronavirus to weapons research. But the... Let me find this other article here one second. But the chairman or somebody, I would just say somebody, I don't know who put this out, but that that the there was an article that's also circulated that was in an online uh, website called Nature, International Weekly Journal of Science. And it, this article is from November 12th, 2015. 
And the title is, the headline is, Engineered Bat Virus Stirs Debate Over Risky Research. And it's saying that an experiment that created a hybrid version of a bat coronavirus, one related to the virus that caused SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome, has triggered renewed debate over whether engineering lab variants of viruses with possible pandemic potential is worth the risk. Mm -hmm. So they were already talking about this possibility mm -hmm. of the development of it. And there was SARS that we can remember, I believe that was in, that was maybe about 10 years ago or so, yeah. where SARS was going around, but SARS died out because it was too deadly. It was, if, it's, if a virus is too deadly, then it wipes itself out. Um, and it was contained, but it affected China pretty strongly. And it, even SARS is considered to possibly have been an engineered virus. Um, so it's possible, some of, one theory is that the SARS virus um, was being, um, there's a word for it. it, it basically, I can't remember, there's a term for it, but it's where they enhance it and that's what this virus is, it's an enhanced virus. It has been given qualities that, um, you know, that, that they genetically engineer it. So, you know, it's, it's saying that, and just to, just to read another paragraph of this, it's saying that, um, that in an article published in Nature Medicine on November 9th, scientists investigated a virus called SHC014, which is found in the horseshoe bats in China. The researchers created a chimeric virus made up of a surface protein and the backbone of a SARS virus. So they created a virus with a particular protein. And if you listen to the reports, even on NPR and everything, they talk about this protein because that's how they're saying they're going to make the um, vaccination is with this protein um, that is hooked up to the SARS virus that they had adapted it to grow into mice and mimic human disease. The chimera infected human airway cells providing the surface protein has blah, blah blah has the necessary structure to bind to a key receptor on the cells and to affect them it also caused disease in mice but did not kill them so you know it's talking about this research that that's been going on since um you know for five years for five years it's been known and going on for five years so you know, we know those things. We know that accidents do happen even in the level four highest security level of offensive biowarfare weapons laboratories, and that there was one in Wuhan. So first of all, this is not, you know, the center of this epidemic. And by the way, where 88,000 people were affected. And, you know, so um, that was on lockdown for about three months. In fact, from what I think, I, I think it still pretty much is on lockdown. In fact, much of China is. And they that this is creating this um, economic blowback in the United States. But it certainly is possible that it was biowarfare from the United States or it was sabotaged and officially leaked by 
some force or it was an accident that it leaked out. That is, that is not an unreasonable um, conclusion in any possible way. And so when they talk about um, the question of, um, of conspiracies, mm-hmm. it, is, it is basically a way to attack any questioning of the U.S. government. Because yeah. if we look at what imperialism has done, you know, as the chairman says, a government and a political system of parasitic capitalism that's born on assaulting human beings, kidnapping them by the millions, turning them into commodities and work machines for hundreds of years, why wouldn't it use this? Why wouldn't it do something like this? And, you know, as has been pointed out, this coronavirus came at a really convenient time when uh, Secretary of State Pompeo was out and about all over the world denouncing China, attacking China, and um, calling for people not to trade or deal with China. And so, you know, and of course the U.S. was involved in a trade war, in um, sanctions, had levied sanctions against China. And so it's very politically convenient for the U.S., but also you know, the, that the U.S. invented by and, and uses bio-warfare. It used mm-hmm. um, uh, smallpox-infested blankets against indigenous people. It has the Tuskegee um, so-called experiment, giving African people syphilis and then studying them for 30 years, and they never knew that that's what was wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, the one that dropped the bomb is the United States. The reason that other countries have level four bio-warfare labs is because the U.S. has established it. It's well known that bio-warfare is used and studied. Fort Detrick, Maryland is a well-known site of it, mm-hmm. and there's many others, also in Britain. And the U.S. has done everything, and it has... Um, you know, it has used right here in St. Louis. It has dropped toxic chemicals onto pruitt Igo public housing and never told the people. And in fact, the pruitt Igo is right where the NGA, another top secret spy agency of the U.S., is, is going to have its uh, so-called campus by pushing out African people who live there and, and, and taking away their homes. Um, and But the NGA forced the city of St. Louis to spend millions of dollars of a cleanup of that land, of that property, because of what the U.S. government had done with the toxic dumping consciously on a public housing project. And, of course, the city had never cleaned it up when African people lived there. So there's, there's just so much more to say. The U.S. has done horrible, hideous things, dirty tricks, as they call it, overturned um, people's regime, people's, people's administrations around the world, you know, in Chile and Iran and Guatemala and, and so many places, attacked the, the people, waged a war against the people of Vietnam who were fighting for their freedom, had COINTELPRO and Operation Chaos a CIA program targeting the African liberation movement here inside the U.S., murdering, assassinating 
Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Bobby Hutton, and so many others. Mm -hmm. There's just so much to say. The U.S. has done all this. People know it. So why, you know, is it called a conspiracy when it's what the U.S. does? And it's highly probable or possible that this has happened. It, it really is shocking that this Hura. system, Uhuru Chairwoman Penny, thank you for this overview on the, the question of the coronavirus that everyone is talking about right now. I find it continually amazing that this system will, will look to the masses of people and say, how dare you? Mm -hmm. How dare you suspect us of doing these things when, when we just heard the list of their crimes? Yeah. And, and I know just as you were talking, uh, Penny, that in, just in my memory of the, the, the news that surrounded, um, you know, what's known as 9-11, the September 11th mm -hmm. um, attacks on the World Trade Tower and everything that followed that. There was uh, a senator, right, who received anthrax in the mail, and it was alleged that it was a, a Muslim person who did this. And people in the movement uh -huh. could see right through that immediately. Like, mm -hmm. this is not a Muslim person doing this, the kind of note that they wrote. And it came out even in the news that the suspect was most probably, by their own admission, somebody from the bi a biological uh, warfare center here in the United States who had uh, been developing a type of anthrax to use against people fighting for liberation in what was then known, still known as Rhodesia, mm -hmm. and if I'm not mistaken, is today uh, Zimbabwe. So this is the same uh, country that has kept colonialism alive on the continent of Africa using biological warfare. So it makes complete sense that there would be a biological arms um, race going on in the world today. And knowing all Absolutely. this, knowing everything that you just laid out, Chairwoman Penny has, uh, they say that there might be a vaccine coming. Do you think, I'm, when I hear that, I don't picture myself taking that. I don't either. I, I would not <laughs> accept the aid of the same empire that delivered the disease. What, what are your thoughts on the possibility of a vaccine? Well, I mean, vaccines are made by a tiny amount of the germs that, that cause the disease. So if you want to take a genetically engineered germ mm -hmm. and that's used for biowarfare, that they have no idea what it's going to do to people, and that's, that's why I think they're trying to contain it, that, um, but they know that it, it's very, very dangerous. If you want to put that in your body, then <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. Of course not. Buyer beware. Well, I, I know, I think we're, we're going to be going to a music break in just a minute, but I just want to appreciate this uh, summation. I hope Mark Zuckerberg doesn't take this video down for the fact that we are merely discussing the truth about uh, U.S. government's uh, U.S. imperialism and biological warfare in its history mm -hmm. and the strong likelihood uh, that the coronavirus outbreak that's happening right now, you know, it's, I mean, as the chairman says, if there's somebody on the planet Earth with a head cold, you can blame imperialism. So <laughs> clearly it doesn't matter if it was, even if it was an accident, quote unquote, which I don't think it was, um, blame U.S. imperialism. Because yeah. as as yeah. you just said, Penny, you know, the fact that there are these uh, BSL-4 labs all over the world, just like you said, it's the same reason why there's nuclear weapons uh, all over the world. Because the U.S. has set the standard and made it necessary for the, the peoples of the world to have to protect and defend themselves from the biggest terrorist entity spreader of biological chemical warfare that has ever existed in human history, the U.S. government. So 
no matter which way you slice it, uh, it is clearly blowback that's happening right now. And, and I heard that Trump was shaking hands at a CPAC conference where there was actually coronavirus kicking around the room. So the blowback might end up reaching the Oval Office um, at some point in the near future. But we're going to take a quick break and when we, when we'll come back and continue this discussion on coronavirus as well as the uh, reparations recruitment week that the Uhuru Solidarity Movement is involved in right now. Uhuru. Welcome back to Reparations in Action. This is the Reparations Recruitment Week, and we're going to talk about that and the Black Power Blueprint. But first, we wanted to do some shout outs. Uhuru, I want to shout out uh, some of our viewers. We have joining us on Facebook, Ann Hirsch, who's a member of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement and former city council candidate here in St. Petersburg. Uhuru, Ann. Um, the Uhuru ASI Facebook page, Alexandra Krupp. Uh, if you're still joining, um, good to hear from you. Uh, Kobina Bantushango is joining us, the uh, Southern Regional Party Leader of the African People's Socialist Party. Temba Shibanda, who is filling in as our engineer today. Thank you, Temba Shibanda of the African People's Socialist Party. Um, Tacharwa Masimba, also of the African People's Socialist Party, a leader within the Black Power Blueprint Project in St. Louis. Um, incredible to have you uh, joining us. Tama Gadini, a regular, yes. a Reparations in Action regular. Janaba Phillips, Uhuru. Jackson Hollingsworth. Curtis Calhoun, Kabula Matumbo, and Penny Hess. All right. All right. Great. It's fantastic. And there's to have others all that are you. watching as well. So that's great. And and there, there are others watching as yes. well? Okay, great. So as we were saying, uh, we're really honored to have all of you with us to be here because we're in the midst of this incredible worldwide reparations recruitment week for the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. And our goal is to recruit 100 new people, in particular white people, we know you're listening, to join in the fight for reparations to African people. 
by becoming a card-carrying member of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. So, so far, we have recruited 11 new members and six upgrades, and that's just within the first 24 hours. And I have an update on that. Uh, within the time that we've been doing this show, uh, one uh, Sean Neville was listening. Okay. And he went ahead and became a Steve Biko sustainer $5 a month of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. So, right Uhuru. on. Wow. Salute Uhuru. to Sean. Uhuru. That is a familiar name. Uhuru Sean. <laughs> right on. So, uh, we really appreciate you for doing that. And we encourage everyone listening out there, if you're already a member, maybe you know someone who's open to the idea of reparations and solidarity with the African community, with colonized people. Maybe this would be a time to bring them into the show or invite them to go to uhurusolidarity.org and become a member. So what does it mean when you become a member of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement? With a person who has been a member for longer than any other white person right here with us uh, on, on the line from St. Louis, Chairwoman Penny Hess, who was present at the founding of the conference of the African People's Solidarity Committee in 1976 and has worked under the leadership of Chairman Omalia Shatella in forging the stance of genuine and principled solidarity with African national liberation. We have this opportunity to ask you, Chairwoman Penny, could you talk to us about that very first day when you met the Uhuru movement in 1976? Why did you decide to join? Why did I didn't, you said, why did I join? Well, that? yeah, that's, that, that's how we're phrasing it. Could, could you tell us about that day in 1976? Okay. Uhuru, Uhuru. Well, I certainly want to start by saluting the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. So 12 new members mm -hmm. and six upgrades within the first 24 hours. So that's a new member every two hours, and that's pretty good. <laughs> that's good. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's going to be great. I know that that USM is going to get the new 100 new members and probably more. So there's so much excitement about joining in solidarity with an actual revolutionary movement of African people and fighting for reparations as a stand to, um, to, to be able to, for us as white people, to rectify our relationship to African people living at their expense and... Um, and being able to stand in genuine solidarity with an anti-colonial movement by, by returning the stolen resources. It's, it's an incredibly positive stance. So it's very, very exciting. And I urge every white person to become a member, join the forward side of history, as they say. And, you know, just back in, in 1976, I... Um, I heard about a, an event that was going to take place in Louisville, Kentucky. I had been living actually in Europe. I lived in France for two years. And I would just say that because while I was there, I did meet African people from around the world, including from the U.S., who were living there, so pretty much in exile from the, um, from the counterinsurgency the war, the COINTELPRO that was attacking the African liberation movement inside the U.S. and basically which destroyed that movement, um, which was a revolutionary movement as Chairman Omali Shatella has summed up. This was in early 70s, in 1972 to 1974. And one way that I, I worked to learn French 
was to read Le Monde and, and the other newspapers um, that, you know, that were there. I tried to read all the newspapers. And as I read them, I learned more and more about what was the main trend in the world. First of all, that Vietnam had won. And actually, the the peace, quote unquote, negotiations between the Vietnamese and the um, and the and the U.S. actually took place in Paris while I was there, and they were taking place there. That went on for a while, and um, actually, I was working for a rich white family. You know that that's a way, and then you get a, a place to live in there. It's called the Chambre de Bonne, the maids' quarters. So way on the top of the building. So I was, li- you know, had a free place to live, and I would do a little cooking, a little cleaning, things, shopping, things for them. And I, um, but also interestingly enough, the uh, ambassador from Vietnam lived in that building. So when there would be huge demonstrations and, and the embassy was very, just a few, you know, places down from there. And so there were huge demonstrations when I would go out of the white left in France in solidarity with the victory of the Vietnamese people, even though, of course, the, his, the true history was that the, um, that the left in France took a long time and did not support the liberation of the people of Algeria or, or um, Vietnam for a long time until basically till they were just about winning. So that um, anyway, that's how I learned a lot about what was happening and also what was going on at that time were the struggles in Africa, in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, these struggles were at their height in this time when African people were struggling for their liberation. And I would read the accounts every day, and it was very powerful. Even though Le Monde is a bourgeois newspaper, it still had an interest in being against U.S. imperialism, even though it is a major imperialist criminal in the world. But it, it still revealed a lot about what was happening and the general sentiment of the people, you know, of just citizens, even of France and the United States at that time, was was for the right of anti-colonial struggles around the world to win, for people to be free and liberated. So this was a context which in which I came back to the United States and I learned about this event that was going to be happening in Louisville. It, it took place at the YMCA in the African community. And it was just in a room on the second floor. I remember going there and going upstairs. And I came into the room. It was a fairly large room with a lot of chairs. There were a lot of people there. And I just remember that all the party members, or a lot of the party members, men and women, had beautiful African clothing on, and they also had a little, one of those little record players from back in the day, and they were playing um, somebody like John Coltrane or a record with um, Thelonious Monk or, you know, one of the great jazz players, and many of the jazz players and musicians of that period did have 
um, an African consciousness. And then there was set up, there was a tripod, and on the tripod was a big, big map of Africa. So the event began, and, and basically the chairman started going through every country on the map and talking about, of course, the borders, the, the uh, imperialist-imposed borders, and started describing the state of the struggle for independence in every single you, you know, imperialist-imposed country in Africa. And uh, it was really powerful. I mean, he went through all 52 states and wow. put the status of what was going on there. And afterwards, he, um, he, he said that they were forming a solidarity committee and that um, people from the white community would be welcome to come to Florida, to St. Petersburg, Florida, for that in a, in a month or so after that event. And um, so I knew somebody else, another white person. She had the chairman over to a group of white people, over to her house. The chairman talked more about the Solidarity Committee. And, um, and we went. We had a carload of people, and we went to the founding conference of APSC in 1976 in St. Petersburg, Florida. That was before the Uhuru House. But there, it was at a church, um, I think on 20th Avenue, 22nd Avenue um, South. And it was an amazing event. Um, it was incredible. And it took a long time. It took about a year or more for the Solidarity African People's Solidarity Committee to, first of all, really, really become consolidated. And there were only a few of us, as the chairman said, and the chairman, of course, put out an incredible analysis of what I'm just talking about last night mm -hmm. on that amazing interview with him. And people should watch that. You know, we just went, the party went through and how majority of the white people who came to that conference were like, well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this, you know, after they left, after they said they would, but they, they left and went home and no, they decided to keep their comfortable place on the pedestal of white power. So what happened was the party was taking on the struggle to free Desi Woods, who was an African woman in Georgia, incredible African woman in Georgia, who... Um, was attacked, she and another woman, African woman, were hitchhiking to prison to visit a family member. And um, they were picked up by a white man who then drove them to the woods and had a gun and he was going to, to rape them. And she fought for the gun. She grabbed his gun. She killed him. She defended herself. And the women you know, went on and escaped. But Desi Woods was accused of murder in this heart, the way out in rural Georgia, you know, in the heart of, of white power, and was accused of murder. And so the party built this case to defend Desi Woods, not as a white woman's, you know, um, ability to defend herself or right to defend herself, but as a woman who fought against, an African woman who fought against colonial violence against African people. Because a lot of the white left or white women's movement, white 
feminists had taken up this cause, but the party had to fight to define it politically that Desi Woods was an African woman in the context of the struggle of African people to be free and liberated, and that it had always been a tool of colonial violence was, you know, part of that was sexual and other kinds of violence towards African women. That's women. That's a, a, a an attack on the entire people. Mm-hmm. So it was a very important case. It was one that um, the party fought for and defined. And it turned out that out on the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area, there was an organization, a white left organization, a very opportunist organization called Prairie Fire Organizing Committee. But they had had taken up the case to defend Desi Woods and to um, ostensibly to work under the leadership of the party and the National Committee to Defend Desi Woods, which was led by Omawali K. Thing, who is now deceased, but who is an incredible organizer of the party and based in Atlanta. So with this growing, the party consolidated and even the chairman went and there was a party unit in San Francisco to um, to lead this, to take this on, to win all the white people who would be out there to um, truly take a principled stand under the leadership of the party to win um, massive support from white people all over the world to free Desi Woods. So... We went, I went out there, I went out to the Bay Area basically in 1979 and the, um, and that is really where the African People's Solidarity Committee was, was consolidated, where it was built. And there were a lot of people, a lot of white people working under the leadership of the party. There was Redbeard who what is still a donor and supporter mm-hmm. um, of the party out in San Francisco. There was Maureen Wagner was part of this, who is in the leadership of APSC today. And Allison Haney, the secretary general of APSC now. And so this was a period when there was struggle with Prairie Fire. They wanted to define it. They had been used to having opportunist relationships to African people to controlling the struggle and, and much of the African liberation movement from the Bay Area was in prison and, at that time and so therefore um, the Prairie Fire forces would position themselves closely with those Africans in prison and be able to um, to have a lot of control over them in a very opportunistic way. And the party fought on many levels. There's a lot of history here. I, I won't be able to go into it all, but we should talk about it because the party literally had to defend itself. And in any case, the African People's Solidarity Committee emerged, but it took about 10 years or nine years really till 1985 for APSC itself to politically consolidate under the leadership of the party in the sense that we adopted African internationalism as our own. We still had a concept of a parallel organization that we would, you know, that 
that we sort of had our own struggle in the white community. We just didn't get it until the party struggled and struggled and struggled. And it was around the question of the resources, turning back over the resources and the question of, of reparations. And there's so much more to say about this, but I would say that in 1985, we had a serious struggle inside of the African People's Solidarity Committee. Um, many people left, several people left, um, the organization because we took on the question that we are not a parallel organization, that we are African internationalists, and therefore we come to the same conclusion that the African People's Socialist Party does, that we owe reparations, that we, our job is to go into the white community, raise resources, pay reparation to the leadership of the African Revolution, the African People's Socialist Party, and that was the consolidation of APSC and a really, really powerful and historic turning point. So, you know, when we got it, we finally got it, and reparations has been our brand, our mantra, everything that we're about since then. Um, and, you know, it's been an incredible journey. The African People's Socialist Party is now growing. It's all over the world. It's it's incredibly influential in defining the reality for African people everywhere. Chairman Omali Shetela continues to fight like hell for the liberation of African people and actually putting the institutions and the uh, structural foundation of the economic basis for the political reality of African people on the ground with more than 50 institutions and the um, leadership also under under the party, as part of the party, the leadership of Deputy Chair Onisene Ishitela, who has played the leading role in the coordination and development of all of these institutions, of which many, many more are going to be coming, including the Black Power Blueprint that we see here. And there's there's things that I would like to say about that as well, and I don't think we have time, but I, I just want to say that I couldn't think of a better life, that it has been so much that has enabled me as a person to see the world as it really is, mm -hmm. <clears throat> to, to take responsibility for what we as white people condone, what we have actually done, our violence, our complicity, our apathy, all of it that, that we live, you know, our lifestyle that is just about the next vacation, the next boat, <laughs> you know, the, you know, our jobs, our everything um, that, you know, the restaurants we're going to, the dog, the, you know, the pets, the, the, this life that, that we take for granted that can only exist because of the colonization of African people inside the borders of the United States, in Africa, and all around the world, that the resources of Africa of uh, the, on, on the land stolen from the indigenous people from against whom genocide has been perpetrated that we have participated in and the colonization of the majority of the people of the planet and their resources are the are what ta it takes for us to live mm -hmm. and 
that that is very profound. And, you know, just writing the book Overturning the Culture of Violence, which was 20 years ago, that I wrote that, but it's all true. It's all still true today. And it was a very profound experience to to really come to terms with what we have done and what we do and what it means. And um, it was it was something that almost, it, you know, it was deep. It was really deep to, to look at this and, and to write it and to talk to other white people about it. And, and I think that, um, you know, but, but I think that the question is that this, that, that acknowledging this, that taking responsibility for it and standing in the culture of reparations, which is not a payback, not charity, but returning the stolen resources, that that's the key to solving all the profound problems that are in the world today, problems, problems created by this vicious system of parasitic capitalism and of which the African working class in unity with the indigenous working class, Arab, Palestinians, all the oppressed and colonized peoples of the planet Earth, um, these are the people that will solve the problem, not us. We're not going to solve the coronavirus. We're not going to solve the, the economic crisis of capitalism because it's created by the resistance of everybody else. We're not going to solve the environmental crisis that we face today. But the people, the African workers, indigenous people, people around the world will solve it. And that is a future for all humanity. And it's a very profound thing, you know, to experience and to acknowledge. It's an incredibly so, profound Uhuru. thing to hear. Uhuru, Chairwoman Penny Hess, Uhuru. I salute you and thank you profoundly uh, for that incredible narrative of the heroic and inspiring history mm -hmm. of the African People's Socialist Party and the African People's Solidarity Committee. Oh, yeah, I, I unite. I unite with Jamie. That was amazing. And I love hearing the history of APSC. Uh, it's one of my favorite things, really. Um, just to hear the history of the party, the history of the, the chairman's uh, strategy and struggle to build this brilliant, groundbreaking uh, component of the revolutionary struggle of African people to be free. And also to really learn, you know, what it was like yeah. uh, for Chairwoman Penny Hess at that time and and just the whole political context of that era and the history that was made and the history that is being made. And it is an amazing life and the best is yet to come because we are going to see the, the, the end of imperialism in the chairman's lifetime, exactly. in Penny Hess's lifetime. Um, very soon, I, I am confident that we, we are going to be able to experience that and we're going to be part of bringing, bringing it about under the leadership of the African Revolution. And we have people tuning in. I know we're, we're, we're going to close out. So, But uh, we want to salute our viewers. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, thank you to Sean Neville for joining the Uhuru Solidarity Movement during this program as a Steve Biko sustainer. Um, and we want to salute Alexander Ayanov from Moscow, Russia, anti-globalization movement of Russia who's tuning in. And he says, Uhuru. So Uhuru to Alexander. Um, Anne Hirsch says, uh, inspiring history. Thank you, Chairwoman Hess. And Virginia Wilson, who is keeping reparations alive in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, she says, love hearing the history of the Solidarity Committee and how Chairwoman Penny met the movement. It really defines solidarity with black power and reparations versus white opportunism, African internationalism versus feminism. Uhuru, 
Louisville. Now we have five USM members here. Salute Chairman Penny Hess. Yeah. So, who? Right on. We are in Louisville. APSC, there you go. Again. That's very powerful. On yes. the second second floor, right? It yep. was it, with Coltrane playing in the background. Wow. There you go. So you're you're in St. Louis, Chairwoman Penny has in the. Uh, we're actually we're gonna have to close out. Okay. Yeah. We, we we have so, there's so much more that we would yeah. love to talk to you. Tune in about. next week. Yeah. This this is an ongoing history and and the, <laughs> as you pointed out last night, Jesse, one of the great things about hearing this is it really makes you want to be part of yeah. this history and become yep. conscious of the fact that we are all part of the process of defining what history is as it unfo- unfolds before our very eyes. So on that note, we are uh, I, I unite with Jesse in saluting Sean for uh, becoming a member of the Uhura Solidarity Movement today and would encourage anyone out there who's listening who hasn't done so already to take a stance in solidarity with the African working class, with African people, become a part of this revolutionary stand for white people. If we are for socialism, for justice and liberation to African people and oppressed peoples, then we have to be for reparations. And that means joining the Uhura Solidarity Movement. And uh, Jesse, can you tell our listeners again where they can go to become All a member? All you have to do is go to org slash join, become a member. Anybody who joins this week, by the way, gets a special button, a red button with the shape of Africa on it that says, I stand for reparations now, solidarity with African people in the U.S. and around the world. So, And also, if you upgrade, if you're already a member and you upgrade your membership, you get one of those as well. So, org slash join. And I also want to encourage people to register for our national convention, Reparations Uprising in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, at the Uhuru House, the headquarters of the Black Power Blueprint. And our keynote speakers will include Chairman Amalia Shatella, founder and leader of the Uhuru Movement. So we're very, very excited about that. And Chairwoman Penny Hess of the African People's Solidarity Committee, as well as, I might add, President Columbine and Danette of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, Akile Anai, a former city council candidate here in St. Pete and director of agitation and propaganda, um, Tacharo Masimba of the Black Power Blueprint, uh, Deputy Chair Onizaneya Shatella of the African People's Socialist Party. This is going to be a convention you don't want to miss. So, Reparations Uprising, St. Louis, April 18th and 19th, and the night before will be an opening reception for the Uhuru History and Art exhibit at Mokabee's Cafe, also in St. Louis. So go to uhurusolidarity.org slash convention for more information. Fantastic. Don't miss that. So many brilliant revolutionaries all together at the same time to talk about reparations. And every Thursday night, uh, there is the reparations study guide. Is study that happening? Yes. Study Thursday group? night, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Uhuru Solidarity Movement Facebook and YouTube. Fantastic. And we just want to remind everyone, this is Reparations Recruitment Week, so stay in touch with us on Facebook um, via YouTube. Don't miss the Omali Taught Me study series every Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can catch that on the chairman's Facebook page and on YouTube, the Burning Spear Marketplace, if I'm not mistaken. And we encourage everyone to continue to tune in to Reparations in Action. Come back and join us next week at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. And uh, we want to salute everyone who tuned in today. We want to thank Chairwoman Penny Hess of the African People's Solidarity Committee for giving us that incredible history of the solidarity movement. And uh, Jesse, thank you for being the co-host today. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you, Temba. Black Power 96, as always. Engineer extraordinaire. We want to thank Black Power 96.3, WBPU-FM in St. Petersburg for giving us this hour every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week on Reparations in Action.